brother Jamie, please join me in the lower crypt and make sure no one is following you. Brother Samuel, I will make haste and we will surely get this underway soon. Please do and uh, pull out your robe from underneath your pants, it's unseemly. Oh, brother Samuel, it's just a, 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 a mis- mistake of mine, I'm so sorry. Uh, hopefully that is all in order now and we can begin. Yes, the door is shut, and now I can get rid of this voice. Ugh. Welcome to the Secret Society of Game Masters, a podcast within a secret crypt of a cult of some unassuming organization, uh, which tells us the secrets and mysteries of game mastering. Uh, We've decided to set up a podcast here, uh, away from prying eyes of our superior lectors. And any uh, mind players that may be watching, listening. Yes. Always there. Never there. Always. They want you to know that we're fine. Always watching. <laughs> uh, so we have uh, brought a podcast uh, to somehow connect to the outside world of which we may never see again. Uh, so, my name is Sam. My name is Jamie. And we will mostly be talking about 5th edition. 5th uh, edition Dungeons and Dragons. Woo. Which, by the way, this year is five years old. Shut up. That's it so, is quite ridiculous. That's crazy. Do you remember unboxing the D&D Next stuff? And, you know, I think we got the uh, the Lost Minds of Fandelva stuff and playing that through for the first time and being like, holy holy moly, this is like, this is cool. This is, this is I, I love 4E, but this was even better. Well, the, the the thing was, we started, as you say, with 4th edition, because our background in D&D, basically, was for some reason, all of us wanted to play, would like to have played, but never asked anyone to teach us. And then one day, kind of during and after university, we decided, I guess we're going to have to teach ourselves to play D&D. Pretty much. Went to, yeah, we went to the comic book shop, Forbidden Planet, uh, and we went to their their uh, role-playing games books. You know, say the subterranean dungeon that you would usually descend to in that type of shop. (laughs) Yes, we descended into the lower layer (laughs) where a a thick atmosphere of prepubescent sweat (laughs) and the smell of something rotten in the corner existed. That's far too real. We went up to the books. I know. Well, that room honks. But anyway, (laughs) we went down and we picked out the fourth edition books and we were like, we'd like to play D&D. And we'd like to play the latest edition, because we hear some of the early editions are very complicated. And the guy there was very, like, really kind. He was like, cool. You could wait a little bit for 5th edition. I hear it's going to be really good. And we went, no, we want to play now. So we invested a lot of money into 4th edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started playing it. And it has its charms. I mean, from a combat perspective, I think it was super interesting. Um, it felt, you know, that sort of more, almost more wargamey in terms of the, uh, you know, we felt we had to play on a grid. I don't think we really touched Theatre of the Mind until we started playing 5th edition. Um, no, I think we definitely had some narratives that were set up, but they were almost uh, predilections to more combat. Uh, but as you say, the combat was sublime. And my favourite thing that is missing from 5th edition, from 4th edition, is minions. Yeah. So they they were a pretty interesting concept, actually. Because you could run probably more like your sort of waves of of monsters. That like if you were put in some sort of time-pressured scenario, for instance. 
you know waves of minions coming at you could be uh, could be a, a useful tool. I found. Oh, definitely. So that so fifth edition came out in January two thousand twelve. Well, two thousand twelve uh, January they announced that there was going to be a new edition, and then they started doing D and D next. So they were playtesting it, and I remember watching the Acquisitions Incorporated live streams where they were playing D&D Next and the game, the rules changed from game to game that they were playing and we were all religiously watching like, oh yeah, let's see what Acquisitions are doing today. Green Green. Flame. I was just going to say so we could go Green Flame! <laughs> oh, good it's so good and, and we keep doing it to people who've never watched Acquisitions Incorporated and they're like, right. And we're just there like, what colour's the flame? And Chris will be like, Green flame. <laughs> is that um, where we but, also got the um, Amadeus Amadeus from, or is that something else? I always forget. That is from The Simpsons, ah. where they did a musical version of Planet of the Apes, and I think one of the characters is called Amadeus. Right. And then, but obviously, the amount of deuses that are available in <laughs> Faerun and other. <laughs> <laughs> D &D I mean, worlds. can you can you step into like some unholy temple without there being some sort of dais? I, I'm not sure you can. Exactly, it it wouldn't be worth it. So we picked up fifth edition uh, eventually, and as you say, we got the starters kit, and I ran the starter box. No, sorry, I ran I think... the starter box of fourth edition. You yeah, ran? No, I think it was Jordan who ran. Because one of the things I was going to ask actually when we said we were going to do discuss the fifth edition anniversary. Um, Jordan ran it for a little bit. I think we only did a couple of the sort of encounters, but I I ran Lost Minds of Fandelva fairly recently, about I want to say about four or five months ago, for Nick, oh, yeah. one of our, our common friends who who loved Lord of the Rings, fantasy, and all that, but never never got to experience D and D. Um, so I managed to run that for him and with uh, some of the rest of our common group, and he absolutely loved it. So, um, so well, first plug of the day. Thoroughly recommend Lost Minds of Fandelva, but also it was good, good fun. Yeah, and so in the anniversary of fifth edition, they have re-released some of the books uh, with new covers, and they've also re-released the Tyranny of Dragons saga, which we did play. Mm -hmm. But we will be reviewing that when it comes out to us because we found it quite flawed in a lot of areas, and Wizards of the Coast have said. Look, when it's re-released, we're going to make some fixes and things. There is one really good part of Tyranny of Dragons that I really enjoyed, and that's the the wagoneering bit, which mm -hmm. is in the Tyranny of yeah uh, no Horde, Horde of the, the Dragon, Dragon Queen book yeah. near the beginning, and you just have to get between I think it's Baldur's Gate and Waterdeep. Yeah, yeah, that's all you have to right. get to. And there's just so many really good and really bespoke, interesting single session encounters. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just like, yep, you can solve that in 10 minutes as an interesting thought puzzle. Other ones are good combat, and the other ones are classic kind of role-playing. You find so-and-so in the woods, what do you do? And like those were really good, and I'm kind of holding them back in the campaign I'm running and using those to kind of break up I, when they're traveling to various places. I think, I know I know, we'll obviously touch on this when we do a full review, but I think um, Tyranny of Dragons as a whole had some really good aspects some not so good aspects and i think it was fairly clear that it, it was you know one of their first forays into adventure writing for this edition because i think generally they've got stronger as they've gone on so a lot of the later modules are I, i'm running curse of shot at the moment which again i'm sure we will discuss at a later date but that is a fantastically oh, well written yeah. module 
that obviously leans on earlier editions, uh, forays into Ravenloft, but mm. I think they learned some lessons from that, which, so hopefully a, a re-release will sort of give it the maybe sharper edge it needs. I think they have refined some of their mechanics, by which they've also released what's called the Essentials Kit, uh, which is kind of like a condensed version of the DMG and some players' handbook stuff, and it's really good for one-on-one games. So it's just Dungeon Master and one player, maybe, you know, one up to four players, that they've just got a small self-contained thing, and it just says, look, here's the bare bones of what you Mm -hmm. need. And I think that's been a massive call, because the amount of questions and things that I've seen on message boards saying, what do I need to get started? I've only got, you know, two people. And really, you only need a Dungeon Master and one player to get an adventure going. And it doesn't seem quite right with the normal rule set because they're geared up for groups of like three points. Yeah, four being the sort of normal party size and what everything's balanced around in terms of like challenge rating and so on. But I think what's cool as well is that they've, it, it, whilst it works as a standalone product, it's also actually set. So if you have played Lost Minds of Fandelver, that's, uh, you know, you go to the sort of frontier town-esque Fandelin and, and do some of the sort of quests around there, which I won't go into for spoiler alerts but the essential kits kind of builds on that and from what i understand there's also further adventures in fandolin so if you wanted you could technically run parts of the adventure from the essentials kit but also some of it from lost minds of fandelver so you could build up a small smaller campaign from that if if that was where you decided to go as, as you mentioned the one-on-one variant rule is is pretty cool uh, i've had some because I think they built on the Unearthed Arcana section where they'd been introducing some of the different NPCs and how you can maybe level them up with players if they were to join the party for a while. And I've managed to test those myself in Curse of Strahd and found them really, really useful, actually. So I'm, I'm glad to see that that's sort of made its way into the official releases. Oh, definitely. And I'm keen on picking it up for the campaign I'm running with now, which is almost entirely completely new players mm-hmm. to D&D and role-playing games as a whole. So I think finding some of the companion rules and seeing how they can aid the group in ways that they're not always thinking. Because usually they're, they're doing tried and trusted new things, but throwing in a companion that's like, oh, you could investigate this without me basically signposting it too much would be really yeah. interesting. I'd quite like to bring that into my Because that's the, the difficulty with either NPCs that spend a lot of time or the classic DMPCs, um, which obviously get a bit of a bad rep because sometimes it's the dm playing out their own fantasy or whatever but you know you don't want to go too far in terms of okay this npc must know all the things because it's the dm controlling them like maybe they don't maybe they're their own flawed people and it's, it's could be quite fun having them in a party without becoming too overbearing which i think is a, is a bit of a risk but it's played well i think it's a really good good way of sometimes steering the, the group and having another and just another way of thinking another mindset Definitely, and I have seen examples on both sides of that divide, as you say. I think even Matt Mercer said the first campaign he was playing, the DM was one of the NPCs, and he, well, no, he was a player character even, and he basically just went around and got most of the best loot. Matt didn't quite understand what was happening, but he was like, hmm, that's fine, it's not the bit of the game I'm looking to engage with. So Jamie, now we move on to our new feature, Monster of the Week. Ah, Excellent, Brother Samuel. I mean, excellent, Sam, let's do that. (laughs) We wanted to kind of pick a monster or collection of monsters on a theme and kind of present them to you as things you may not have tried or something that's a little bit of a hidden Mm -hmm. gem. Uh, I wanted to go for quite a classic, so animated objects, which includes the animated armor, the flying sword, and the rug of smothering. You can find these in the monster manual, pages 19 and 20. 
just before the picture of the Ankhag, which is just amazing. <laughs> um, so I will read the description. Animated objects are crafted with potent magic to follow the commands of their creator. When not commanded, they follow the last order they received to the best of their ability and can act independently to fulfill simple instructions. Some animated objects, including many those created in the Feywild, may converse fluently or adopt a persona, but most are simple automatons. I like them a lot because I can basically litter them and mundane objects into a dungeon and my players will just be like, okay, now I'm concerned about everything. <laughs> and then it can... Yeah, definitely. It, you can even just have one at the start of a dungeon and then it sets the theme for what's happening here. It works perfectly in kind of... in magical mansions i put one in i had i <laughs> the campaign i'm running at the moment is a weird mix of the sword coast but with a load of homebrew thrown at it because as it says in the source characters adventures book here is a jumping off point you can make what you want from here but usually i never have the sword coast adventures guide to hand whenever they ask me questions and so stuff gets invented so I didn't know whether you knew this, Jamie, but in Daggerford there is a underground mine, which is also a bank, um, and it doesn't have. I did not know this. <laughs> no, it doesn't have door numbers for the different vaults. It has riddles. You get a key, and then you have to figure out where the riddles will answer the door to. So I gave them a little riddle uh, based on like objects that were nearby, and they managed to find the door that they needed to. But I littered it with. Uh, animated armor. Oh, okay. So I just had them facing here, there, and everywhere. Uh, and it was really good, and they were really anxious from the get-go. So I just say, yeah, you go down this cavern and there's a suit of armor just standing there. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of... Especially after you've introduced one, even if it's way earlier in the campaign, it's that, I want to check it. I want to see if it's trapped. I want to see if it's magical. Is it going to hurt me? And it's, it can just, you know, you can play on that paranoia of no, nope, it's just an armor. Yeah. And I or... Uh, and it's a very early get-on for a lot of condition immunities because it can't be blinded, charmed, deafened, exhausted, frightened, paralysed, petrified, or poisoned. Mm -hmm. uh, and has some extra damage immunities for like poison and psychic and such because you know they're just objects basically. They're just objects. They, they, they ain't gonna they ain't gonna be affected by your poison. But I do like one of the the features that's in it, which is the anti-magic susceptibility. So if you if someone managed to kind of use dispel, which and it might be a good time to get the players interested in using uh, functional spells rather than damaging spells. Absolutely. Um, I think what's great about uh, animated objects in general as well is, um, you know, it's more it seems at least by the challenge ratings and you know hit points and stuff they are a bit more aimed at lower level sort of heroes. I think it's fair to say, but you know if you wanted to. Whether you wanted to make some room that has a, a lot of different types of these things, you can actually build up a fairly small and tough army of out of these things. I remember I've run um, a couple of sessions at Adventures League, uh, which relied heavily on animated objects, and even some of the sort of getting towards middle level things. If you had enough of these types of creatures, it was it was quite difficult for them. So, oh yeah, and you could even change. You could easily change. The flying sword, for example, you could change what type of sword it was just to up the damage rating, or you could change the animated armor, what it's made out mm -hmm. of, change the difficulty rating. But you're right, it is really good for low levels just to go, look, there is weird and magical stuff, because I've seen a lot of campaigns that rely heavily on throwing kobolds and humans at lower level people, 
and then they just presume that's all there is. Yeah, or your classic goblins or orcs arrive and attack the village, and that whilst that's you know great and it has its place and stuff, sometimes it's nice to mix things up. Yeah, Whether that's going to a uh, a terrible dungeon beneath or some some lords or undead's castle, for instance, as you say, they fit in in, in quite a lot of different scenarios, so they're good fun that way. I will, I will, I, I hope my players aren't, li- aren't going to listen to this, but I'll give you a little. Uh, way i've i've sneakily tried to use one uh so in my in curse of strad there's a um, strad has his own animated armor which is obviously based on the animated armor in here but it's got its own stat block it's a little bit more buffed up um because strad count strad van zarovich if you're not aware of him is a very dastardly evil vampire he um i contrived for him to leave a a suit of his animated armor lying around in a hopefully non-suspicious clearing for one of the players to get because he had made it quite clear he was after he was looking for plate armor and so he's been going through the rest of this campaign wearing this armor oh, and, and actually using one of its extra features which it attack can attack with lightning bolts from its chest which he's never questioned no one's ever tried to detect magic or any of these utilitarian <laughs> spells they've used as you've mentioned sam but in a very recent encounter with strad strad actually spoke a command word and took over the armor and made it fire at someone else and they've still not gone hey wait a minute maybe this armor isn't um it isn't going to be a good thing to use. So I'm really looking forward to later in the campaign being able to uh, use that to even greater effect to disable one of the sort of tanky fellows. But uh, that's just one example, for instance, where, you know, if you get creative with uh, using things like these, it can it can be quite fun just to, just to use. Obviously, that's an example where I mess with my players a little bit, but that's more because Strahd is that kind of villain. But you don't have to be that way if you don't want to. No. And the only good way to be a DM is to have fun. Yeah, obviously you having fun, but also the players having fun. So I would, for instance, I wouldn't ever want to disable him so heavily that it was then unfun for him. So uh, there's a balance aspect to it, which maybe we'll touch on when, if and when I ever review my Curse of Strahd stuff. And now I'd like to move on to our second feature, which is notes to the GM. These are general questions we can either find or you can send them in. Uh, we will have an email link in the show notes for you to do so. So I found this one on Reddit uh, a couple of days ago. It's by One Damfort on Reddit. I want to use were-rats, but they are way too strong. I'm doing a solo adventure, and he is playing a druid level 2 right now. I would probably suggest getting some companions, but my main question is, what is the best way to nerf a creature down if it's too strong? Should I nerf down the damage, or also the HP? Or should I use the statistics and attacks of another creature? So, the quest, the, we'll do a bit of foley work here because I will move forward in the monster manual to page 209. We're definitely going to have a look at lycanthropes in, in general because A, they have a double page. Oh, they are a classic and I do like the way that they work in uh, the Forgotten Realms, the kind of the mechanics behind them and obviously... Mm-hmm. how players can become lycanthropes. But that's not what we will do here. So the were-rat has an armor class of 12, hit points of 33, but it has quite a lot of attacks. So I can easily see at level 2, 1 or 2. I, the challenge rating is 2. So a challenge rating of 2 should mean that for a group, a party of four, four adventurers at level 2, it should be a medium sort of challenge for them. 
I think one of the things to mention straight off the bat and why it will be a really difficult creature for any sort of low-level adventurers to fight is its damage immunities. So because it's a were-rat, similar to like werewolves and were uh, ravens, were tigers and so on, they are immune to any damage from or bludgeoning, piercing or slashing from non-magical attacks not made with silvered weapons. So in, in, essence, in essence, if you're, I don't know, a fighter or a rogue, and you don't have a silver dagger or you don't have a magical weapon, it's really unfortunate mm. you're not going to be able to do any damage to that wear rat. Now, <clears throat> from speaking from personal experience, Sam, again, running at, at AL, um, I've, we've, we've run wear rats against um, fairly low-level parties before, and if you run them as written, that can get really frustrating for which, however many in the party are unable to do damage you might want to change that or you might want to say to remind your players hey you don't have to always do damage have you thought about knocking them prone or or grappling them and making it easier for other people to hit but straight off the bat if if that wasn't what you wanted to do for instance you could say well if i wanted to change that either before the session or on the fly maybe i don't make a damage immunity maybe i just take that away and make it a damage resistance so i'm only doing half damage but at least i'm still doing something right yeah i like that Uh, i think that's definitely worth yeah i if that needs, if whereats need to be in narratively, you can nerf them like that, and mm-hmm. as you say, take away the immunities. But if you were just worried about the general damage, what I like to do is go to the Dungeon Master's Guide, pages two hundred and seventy-four and two hundred and seventy-five. They've got a really good array of monster stats by challenge rating, so you could even just mm-hmm. say that it's a whereat. It has all the same specific abilities but then you could change the armor class and everything if you wanted to just run it at half challenge rating the armor class stays at 13 uh, it goes up to 13 but it can't do quite as much damage yeah but you've still got it in narratively you've still got a lot of the interesting mechanics in but you've nerfed it in a way that is still contiguous and can be useful and especially if you're still running a camp if you're running a campaign that rewards experience per monster then you could just have that experience at that challenge rating and you don't need to figure out, oh, what's the experience now? I've kind of nerfed it, but I don't know what to do. Yeah, and I think challenge rating is a really good tool that they do give you in the Dungeon Master's Guide to to give you sort of broad strokes like that. Like if you're comparing straight to the monster statistics by challenge rating, as you say, we're at what challenge rating two. It is a little bit lower in terms of its HP and its damage per round, but that's because you've got some of the sort of ancillary defensive mechanics like the damage immunity and the the fact it can curse someone with lycanthropy. So if I, I would say, you know. The, this is a really cool tool to use, but do bear in mind some of those extra bits like damage immunities or resistances or any extra abilities it has. Might You might want to factor those in as well as using that. Okay, yeah, that's definitely worth considering. What else would you recommend trying? So I think um, most of what we've discussed so far is, is looking at the scenario of okay, I'm planning to run this as an encounter. Maybe it's a little bit higher level than my party are used to, so I'll do some things before the session to to nerf them down, to still use them and introduce them and, and, and let, let the players experience that monster, which is a totally cool thing to do. You can do that with many different things, like if you wanted to run a dragon, for instance, and but you, get, you think, well, my party aren't quite high level enough yet. So that's one example. Uh, I think another scenario that's worth covering whilst we're talking about uh, nerfing monsters 
uh, or adjusting them to whatever scenario you're in anyway, is, okay, I'm partway through a combat. Um, I've already pre-planned it. Turns out, actually, this monster's a little bit stronger than I thought, or maybe it's a little bit weaker than you thought, and you thought the, um, the party would have a tougher or a harder time with it, and they're actually steamrolling it. Well, one thing that it's worth doing uh, whilst you're midway through combat is thinking if you can adjust its HP, and I think it mentioned that in the question. That's a really easy way to make an adjustment to um, the monster without tempering with or uh, tinkering, sorry, with too much of its balance. So you could, you can similarly, if you had not really revealed its armor class, you can change things like its armor class or its to hit damage, all of those things. But those sort of things can get picked up by the players fairly easily if they're tracking how you know what really needed to roll to hit for instance so i've found from my own experience that taking the hit points of a creature not always as gospel can work really well think of it as more of a range of what the creature could have so whenever you see the hit points of a monster in its statistics you'll see for instance if we look at the where at it's got 33 hit points and in brackets next to that it's got 68 plus six so that kind of gives you a range automatically um that it could have at least 12 hit points so six times one plus six but it could have anywhere up to six times eight plus six as its maximum which would be i'm gonna have to do my maths really quickly uh is that 48 so let's say you get in this fight with this we're at and actually oh no it's going really too easy i actually wanted this to be a, more of a challenge to train resources from my group yeah. just give it give it a few more hit points the players shouldn't ever know the statistics of the creature they're facing exactly anyway uh, and if anyone starts calling you out on it then you can always throw down your dm prerogative of i am allowed to change things to suit my world so bore off <laughs> yeah exactly and similarly if, if they're really struggling with it feel free to take a few hit points off it i think if if they were to get you know 25 26 points of damage against that we're at and you feel if if you didn't kill it at that point that they're going to probably maybe i'll get one two three or maybe a total party kill then feel free to do that that's that is your prerogative as a dm and i i have found personally that that really helps because it me it just gives you so much flexibility i don't know if you've got any experience with that sam i've I've done something similar. I've not. I've tended to leave. I, I sometimes when I'm pre-building it, I will knock off a bunch of health, and but sometimes I can also weave in a narrative aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the beginning of the campaign, there was a rather large monster that I was quite keen on, and it was all fine according to challenge rating. And it was a, I think it was a minotaur skeleton. I just wanted a big. Just wanted a big skeleton that would just smash the players about and kind of show, you know, there are there are consequences for rushing into combat and okay. you do need to stay together. Uh, but it, it was way overpowered and only one of the players actually managed to get into that space. And I thought, this isn't adding anything narratively. But I thought, hmm, they did summon this. Uh, they did basically do a ritual to summon this uh, monster here. So I kind of said, well, there's a lot of the ritual components still about. In fact, there's still one glowing crystal glued into the middle of this rune. And the player just went, that's got to be what it is, and destroyed it. And I just went, yep, the players have had enough. I've put down all the plot points that I wanted to. So destroying that crystal did disassemble that particular skeleton. That's really interesting, actually. Add- adding in um, additional elements to your combat rather than just making it a, a slugfest of who can do more damage to who in a quick time that's that's a really good way of making an encounter more interesting that's, I, I quite like that actually thank you uh, there's something we might cover in our next section 
which is from the tomes, our feature section. So we were thinking of doing a big talking point about different player types and how we tell narratives and how we run the game, catering to all the different player types. I currently, and this is currently, have seven players. Oh, oh! You need a medal or something. That's too many. I can't. I can't. I've. I've. I think I've ran for six or seven, and that is my the limit of my mental capacity. So my hat is doffed to you straight away, there, Sam. Thank you very much. It is. It's a lot easier because they are different player types. So mm-hmm. I started. I think I started with five, and then oh, can we bring our boyfriends along? And then I jumped it up to seven, and then and then somebody else joined because they were like, oh, you're playing D and D. And because I'm such a bleeding heart, I couldn't just say, <laughs> oh, no, we haven't really got space for you. Too nice um, for your own good is another way of putting that, I know. for sure. <laughs> but, um, so, in page 34 of the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, it kind of outlines what kind of games you're going to play. And uh, so if I just move to it now. Again, nice bit of foley work of me turning pages now. <laughs> it's really authentic as you can hear that that page turning i'm on my i'm using my uh, digital one so i'm uh, un- unable to give that that authentic experience yeah i'm really I'm, uh, as we are in the lower crypt i'm moving <laughs> these large tomes and there's one with an eye that i just have to keep covered uh, but it, it it highlights play style and it says do you want to do hack and slash do you want to do immersive storytelling or something in between and usually you tend to find that you're running your games as something down the middle. I sure. certainly... I mean, in 4th edition, we were pretty much doing hack and slash with with side dressing, which is fine. That's what we wanted. We all, we just wanted to roll dice and laugh at each other until about 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, yep. <laughs> now, something I do recommend picking up is a book called How to Write Adventure Modules That Don't Suck. Is that I'm Angry not... GM by any chance? That sounds like the Angry GM, but I'm not sure. It's Goodman Games Adventure Design. Okay, um, fair enough. If, if, you, yeah, if just... those of you haven't come across the Angry GM, he writes a, a series of things on a like a blog on online. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, he, he comes at it from a very almost aggressive point, which is why that that reminded me of because how to do something that doesn't suck sounds like him. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this is like a, a collaborative author. I think there's like, there's so many. If I can just, the table of contents is a set each. There's a there's a concept laid out in a kind of an editorial, and then there is an encounter based off those particular mechanics or that narrative that they're trying to weave, and it's really good. I recommend picking it up, even if you're not going to write a module. It's really good for running as a DM and just being like, oh, so you know. I should incorporate more smells into my game because sounds, sounds and sights are something you do, but you want to do more smells. Mm. But the one I'm looking at now is uh, written by Mark, Mark Bayrault or Burrault? Mike Burrault. And it's called Players Make Your World Go Round. And he says that there are four types of gamers. There are achievers, explorers, socializers, and killers. So you, so what he tends to find and what he explains in his game is just build a lot into each session that will appease all these groups. So I have, I have a weird mix of players. I have one or two that are interested in combat but are also really interested in 
stockpiling and item. They're very much the Travis Willingham. They like their resources type thing. Yeah, they're very much the Travis Willingham. He's very happy when he's in combat, but he's also very happy when people need to talk to him about how many swords do we have and how much does this cost. Um, but then I've also got players who like to just sit back and enjoy the narrative, which is always difficult because they are sitting back from the table. They're just soaking it in. They're not always reacting as violently as other people are. Yeah, I think I think some some players like to instigate things and make things happen. Um, I think in my group, I've only got one or two who are like that. I would say the rest, whilst you know, enjoy a lot of story things, are probably similar. They're maybe a bit more reactive and, and like hearing or seeing what happens. So, as you say, it can be maybe a bit different sort of skill set you need to make sure that they're having a good time as well. The the thing that I've also picked up from this book is is something really interesting. It's not something I thought of before because when you're when you're writing your sessions ahead of time, so let's say you set up over the weekend, like, okay, what are we going to do next time? And you plan out a couple of interesting routes or you just put in a... My favourite thing to do is just kind of put a an instigating incident in front of them and watch them go and then just kind of build the world around them quickly out of, you know, straw people and cardboard. <laughs> So I was writing stuff for particular players and I'm writing particular plot points that I want them to write. And the interesting thing that this book highlights again and again is all the good ideas that you have, if you're able to, put them in the next session. Just do it. Because it's really great having this thematic payoff for this character and the pathos, having it 15 sessions ahead or at the end of a massive plot point. Your players may not go there and that can be really right. and that and that can be really challenging as a dm because you've lovingly crafted the story and you can see it as a movie in your head and then the players either never get there or they decide to go down a different path or simply the group ends before you can get that payoff so i've recently thrown in a load of plot twists that i thought i'd have to pay off much later and actually they're paying dividends now because now the players are more involved and interested in the primary plot, which okay. was going to be a bit of a slow burner and then build up. But it, the players just weren't interested in it, which is fine. Uh, I don't think they had the necessary incentive to chase after it as much. But now that I've dropped in a lot of the plot twists really early, they're like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I was just going to say, I think building on that, um, I, I, can, I can see how that would definitely be useful. I, I personally wouldn't drop everything early because just because i do like having a little bit sort of behind smoke and mirrors and whatnot but i think it's it touches on a, a really interesting point that sometimes your players don't go to that lovingly handmade dungeon or whatever that you've made sometimes you don't get to run the, the bits that you want because they just go somewhere else and that's fine as you say feel free to recycle that like maybe the the cool necromancer that's that's waiting for them in these catacombs that they're now never going to go to or maybe he's behind the next dungeon that they go to or, or whatever like feel free to if you don't get to use those cool things that you've come up with find ways that they can come across them later and that's not necessarily whilst that may sound a little railroady i think if as long as you don't give that impression to your players so long as they it feels like it's still part of a, a natural world and whatever then i don't see how that's that's a, that's an issue hopefully you can still enjoy that for what it is so no i definitely agree and and i do 
I do agree on kind of holding some stuff back. You know, you don't want to kind of go, and this is the end of the story. But like, I found that if I had a good idea and I was able to put it in the next session, I might as well just build it in. Yeah, and that, I think that sounds like a really good idea, actually, because I, I think what that is probably trying to address is too many DMs, GMs trying to be clever and holding things back to give a, either a gotcha moment or a, oh, that's cool, because it relates to something from 25 sessions ago. But as you say, I think you, you kind of touched on players' attention spans can be a little bit shorter than that. So making sure that they're fully engaged and have lots of things to do in the next session and the one after that and so on is a really good way to go about that as well. Definitely. Um, I'm going to read a little bit out of this, just the four character categories, because I think they're quite interesting and I'm just thinking about them, but realising that no no person fully falls into any one of these categories. But if you cater to these groups, then your players may think, wow, there's just so much there. So I will read Achievers like to gain levels, scarf up equipment, and boost their stats. If there's a way to demonstrate their skills and accomplishment to show that they are better than the other players, they are all over it. They jump at any opportunity to gain slightly better weapons or armor, or to bump up a stat that gives them even the tiniest advantage in gameplay. Explorers enjoy poking into the nooks and crannies of the game world, uncovering every bit of lore and information, no matter how trivial. They yearn to see places that few have seen before them. No villager is too boring for an explorer to pass up a discussion. Socialisers are gamers whose primary interest is interacting with other players. Sitting around the game table, these players prefer to interact with their fellow gamers rather than the NPCs populating the game world. Everyone who plays a face-to-face -face RPG has some socialiser tendencies. Killers are the final category, but their name is a little misleading. This group includes not just gamers who love to cause grief to other players, but also those whose primary goal is to help other players learn the game and succeed. Grievers and Evangelists both fit into the killer category. Players who want to do nothing more than kill monsters and NPCs in games fall into this category as well. So kind of moving through and deciding, okay, I'm building a little something for the killer. I'm building something for the Achiever or the Explorer. And the Socializers tend to make their own fun. And if you follow a lot of the popular Twitch games, you'll know the socializers a lot. They're the ones who pull each other aside for a quick conversation or... The Liam O'Briens, or <laughs> if you watch exactly. Good yeah, Definitely, Liam O'Brien is a fantastic socializer. I think he's also partially a killer, but I think, I think he's more a socializer. He definitely pulls people to one side. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really good example of how people don't always neatly fit into one category. You may show elements of one, two, maybe all of them. Yeah, I think, I think build, when you're building your next session, build for those categories first, and then build for the narrative around that, because it can make things feel more rounded if the players who are interacting it go after stuff they always want to do, and they go, huh, I've been rewarded. Previously, I have built a lot of stuff about pretty much straight line. They're going to this place. I'll flesh out the inns and the taverns and, and the stuff that will be involved in the main plot. But I didn't do as much of, you know, this person would like to go get a dog because their character feels lonely. Or this character wants to count up lots of loot and sell it to people. And they want to haggle and get prices. And that's not something I engage with much. But now that I know that that's the kind of thing they want, I'm building it a lot more into the game. 
Absolutely, and and on the on the flip side of that, I, again touching on critical role because it's ever per- pervasive in D and D at the moment. Travis Willingham, I, I know you mentioned before, is a really good example. Uh, he's someone who hates the shopping episodes. He's not particularly interested in in haggling and selling and, and buying. But you know what? Some of your players it might be. So he will, you know, accept that every now and then that there's probably going to be a time where the rest of the players are going to get their enjoyment through that. And that's okay because the, the either the rest of that session or other sessions before and after might be more around elements of the story that he's interested in, whether that's exploring or, or fighting slash killing or whatever it was the other one you, you called it. So I think, I think it's a really important thing to balance and think about your players individually. Whilst as a group, they may really enjoy combat, for instance, you may get one or two who don't particularly like it as much and giving them chance to shine through role play if that's what they're into or or other elements is, is really important yeah i think i think it's perfect uh, i think that's all we have for this episode of the secret society for game masters thank you very much for joining us Brother Samuel, that was actually much shorter than I knew it thought it was going to be in terms of it is time has flown by. Are we in some strange crypt that has different properties of the temporal time? I think you're right, Brother Jamie. It's something we will have to put into our log. <laughs> but yes, uh, <laughs> please do join us uh, next episode. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.